But, you know, when you're looking back at ancient Greeks who were saying things like, fire replenishes in measure as it takes away. And you realize that's the same thing that you carry when you go to do a prescribed burn, you mm -hmm. know, is that because you're killing things, you know, you're, you're inducing death when you do that. Mm -hmm. You're not just burning up dead fuel. You're killing stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's a serious thing, you know. So how do you justify that? I mean, to me, it's like a kind of a sacred act. And um, you, you should have something built into that that um, is culturally relevant at a minimum, if not spiritually meaningful. Mm -hmm. it's, it is, it's like a spiritual act to engage in prescribed fire. But that's like my own really deep personal thing, you know, like because I'm connecting with nature through this element that is so much more powerful me than me that mm -hmm. could kill me. Mm -hmm. and I get to connect with this beautiful element and nature through it and change it and make flowers grow later that wouldn't be there otherwise. Hello and welcome to another episode of Life with Fire podcast, the podcast that explores our relationship with wildfire and how we can better coax us with it in the future. I'm your host, Amanda Montai, and we have our second episode with Amanda Rao of the Oregon Prescribed Fire Council, amongst many other places. She's been affiliated with a lot of organizations and agencies over the years. She is currently employed by the Oregon Department of Forestry, or ODF, in Oregon. And we covered a ton of ground in this conversation. That's why we broke it up into two different, uh, two different episodes. So we're excited to be releasing this one today. We had one quick correction to make uh, regarding the last episode, and I think it also applies to this episode. But Amanda wanted to make sure that it was clear that type 2 burn bosses, existing type 2 burn bosses in Oregon will be grandmothered into the uh, certified burn manager program that they're uh, developing right now. Um, so they will then receive their certification and submission of their documentation showing that they are current. Uh, she wanted me to clarify that and make sure that it was included in this episode. So um, there's that. If you live in Oregon and you have any interest in the Certified Burn Manager Program, I can connect you with Amanda. She is a fantastic resource for that. She was the one that connected me, um, or not even connected me, but she just informed me that the Certified Burn Manager Program in, in uh, Washington State was taking place. And not only was it taking place in November, uh, just a month or two after I spoke with her this fall, but it was only a half an hour from my home, which was very convenient. So I signed up for that immediately after talking to Amanda and it was a fantastic program and I have a whole episode about that that I'm hoping to release um, sometime maybe in the next month. So Amanda was the instigator in getting me to take the Certified Bird Manager program up here in Washington State. I think that she's probably pretty excited to be the instigator for more people to take these programs as they're being developed. Uh, we have one in Washington, there's one in California, there's one being developed in Oregon. All very fantastic programs and worthwhile if you have some of that fire experience, maybe you own some land, maybe you're interested in getting involved in a, in a small nonprofit that you work for uh, with some burning and things like that, it's a really cool opportunity. And like I said, if you have any questions about the Oregon program especially, I can put you in touch with Amanda. So there was that. Another thing I wanted to say before we get into this episode is how appreciative I am of Mystery Ranch for supporting the podcast. Um, they recently came on as a sponsor again for 2023, so I wanted to give a huge shout out to Mystery Ranch. Thank you for supporting the podcast pretty much since the beginning, since the inception, and for making really high quality, fantastic fire packs that I have zero qualms about promoting 
all over the place because they're just fantastic. And uh, anyway, you'll be hearing more about Mystery Ranch in the next couple of episodes. We'll have some ads from them. Um, I do have an affiliate link now, very fancy Instagram influencer. I don't know. Anyway, I have an affiliate link. You can catch that in the episode show notes. If you click on that link, it just means that they can tell that the podcast is working and hopefully it will encourage them to continue to sponsor the podcast. So go click that link, everybody. Maybe buy a pack if you feel up to it. They have everything you can imagine. So thanks once again to Mystery Ranch for supporting the podcast, for supporting this wild idea of mine kind of from the get-go. Anyway, let's get into the episode. One quick disclaimer before we do the episode. Uh, Just like last time, this was recorded outside, and so there are some outside noises that you will have to deal with. I'm sorry. Again, probably not great to use AirPods or headphones maybe even for this episode because it'll probably be pretty loud. There's some wind at a certain point. There's also like a nice loud diesel engine because we are at the site of a prescribed fire. Um, that was being prepped when we recorded this. So a lot of like random ambient background noises um, to be aware of. So take that into consideration as you begin your listening journey. All right, it is time to get this show on the road. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode with Amanda Rao of ODF and the Oregon Prescribed Fire Council. She is amazing and I hope you dig this episode. Yeah, you've really hit every possible, like, employer in this this world. But I really want to work for a tribal government someday, maybe. Yeah. I mean, not in place of a tribal member, but if if they needed me and I could be of service, I think that would be a really great experience to have. Mm -hmm. Um, And I haven't really talked about my work with tribes and indigenous people, and I'm not here to promote that work that I do necessarily. But um, the fact that I have some of that background is part of why I'm... I would like to do more work with tribal communities, although indirectly I have um, over the years. Cool. And in those capacities, are you, you're assisting with burns, you're kind of like helping out, or are you like facilitating burns with tribal members? Like, how does that? Well, so some of it has to do with um, ensuring that if a burn is happening, that the tribes have leadership or the opportunity to, to take leadership. Yeah. Um, that's super on, critical. I mean, because we're like all sitting on indigenous land. Yeah, absolutely. Right now. Mm-hmm. And um, when we're doing, th- and particularly if we're doing things that are nodding to a historical condition that was created and maintained by indigenous people, but mm-hmm. we're not um, Bringing doing indigenous- that in a way that's acknowledging that today. I mean, it's like kind of odd to me. And um, But at the same time, you can't just say, well, let's just have indigenous people take leadership and bring them in. And you don't want to, I mean, that the idea is not to check a box or set up something because it's supposed to be a certain way. It's more about how do we all engage in this land and our relationship to it in a way that um, is in the spirit of the history of it mm-hmm. rather than um, it. It's hard to it's hard to talk about, especially I think because if I were coming from a tribal community or indigenous community, then I would be speaking on behalf of those people as my people. Yep. So instead, I'm speaking on behalf of people who I may consider friends or who and whom I want to support, um, but I'm not speaking for them. Yeah, know? absolutely. And so, um, but yeah, it's mostly in been in the form of um, 
seeing how we can um, stand up this burn crew that we're actually sitting here uh, at the location of where they uh, base their operations mm -hmm. in supporting some of that work um, in um, creating um, training for um, indigenous people and tribal members who don't have access so currently the BIA um, has fire training through relationships with tribes mm -hmm. if the tribe chooses that relationship or that's historically set but there's tribes who don't have that relationship um, in terms of fire management but who still may be interested in developing um, the knowledge and skills to be able to use fire mm -hmm. and so um, we put on an indigenous fire practitioner training here last fall um, for folks from the confederated tribes of the Slets, Indians, the Grand Ronde, and um, the Klamath tribe. Mm -hmm. And that training's been replicated elsewhere. Um, and that training, I think, is a big part of sort of beginning the process that then um, becomes one that is led by um, tribal members and indigenous people. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But until they have the empowerment with fire and the skills then you know it's kind of hard to be able to take that leadership on mm -hmm. um, yeah and and cultures are differently oriented and I, I, I guess for lack of a better term um, s somewhat suppressed in terms of culture you know it's suppression of fire is also suppression of culture um, and so to, more than just taking away the suppression it's sort of how do you revitalize and re not restore but rejuvenate like bringing something back to life from dormancy is kind of one of the ways I think about it yeah. um in a, in a help in helping with that and seeing how to provide the enabling conditions yeah so you mentioned earlier you know I think you were gonna you were almost gonna mention it um when you first started but I'm curious how philosophy has sort of braided itself through all of the work that you've done can you talk uh. about um how that has come up in your career, if at all? <laughs> you know, I think it actually has come up more in terms of how people interact with each other and how I interact with other people. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so if you go back to the pre-Socratics, the ancient Greeks um, in philosophy, they were all trying to decide what the origin of all life was. And... So Anaximander's like, let's, I'm going to go with air, you know, and Heraclitus is like fire, you know, and so of course that's my fave, you know, <laughs> um, but you know, when you're looking back at ancient Greeks who are saying things like fire replenishes in measure as it takes away and you realize that's the same thing that you carry when you go to do a prescribed burn, you mm -hmm. know, is that cause you're killing things, you know, you're, you're inducing death when you do that mm -hmm. you're not just burning up dead fuel you're killing stuff mm -hmm. and that's a serious thing you know so how do you justify that I mean to me it's like a kind of a sacred act and um you, you should have something built into that that um is culturally relevant at a minimum if not spiritually meaningful mm -hmm. and so um I mean to me it's it is it's like a spiritual act to engage in prescribed fire, but that's like my own really deep personal thing, you know, like because I'm connecting with nature through this element that is so much more powerful me than me that mm -hmm. could kill me, mm -hmm. and I get to connect with 
this beautiful element and nature through it and change it and make flowers grow later that wouldn't be there otherwise. You know, it's like you get immediate gratification and you get deferred gratification too, if you allow for it. And if you cultivate that, um, I mean, but you know, so there's like that, that level of like that elemental spiritual, like deep connection with the elements. But then there's the stuff about people. And I think for that, you know, for me, it's been a shift from seeing myself as an individual overcoming odds and myself and always being better and being competitive to shifting to the space of seeing myself as a part of this whole and that just one little part in the many and mm-hmm. like in that like sort of the grind I was talking about and showing up every day is like I'm just one of those moments in that continuum yeah and absolutely. when you start to see yourself that way and then as part of something bigger that's just a that for me is like a philosophical shift you know because it's a shift in my viewpoint of myself and how I see myself in relation to the world yeah um how do you perceive us moving forward in a way where we can maybe engage more people in that in that thought process in mm. in feeling that way uh, about fire I guess yeah so um People need experiences with fire that are super low-key and low-risk, the Mm -hmm. kind that I expose my three-year-old to. And I have lots of pictures of my three-year-old lighting fires that people would be like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're letting your kid do that. Well, guess what? The BTUs are almost nothing. (laughs) And you know why? Because it's February. And you know what? Fire looks the same in February as it does in August. If at the micro scale, like if you light a little flame in some grass, it's not going to look that different, but it's going to be really hot in this one. And it's going to be not so hot in this one. Mm -hmm. It's like, so, um, basically low BTU, um, opportunistic fire, play fire, you know, under low, like no regrets conditions where like you would have to work hard to make it do anything. Now I think climate change is winnowing those down. Like I think it's opening up more and more burn windows, which is good on the one hand. And I, I think we should be taking more advantage of that. But fire season creeps into those windows too, mm-hmm. right? So fire season's lengthening. It's bumping into our shoulder seasons. Our shoulder seasons are actually growing out, but we're not growing with them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we need to be doing that, but I digress. Um, so the opportunities to reconnect with fire, I think, need to come from, um, yeah, those no regrets, low risk opportunities in mellow situations. But the problem is that um, fire as a wholesale um, risk has been sold to people to the point of, you know, don't drop a match, don't light anything, you know, just be so careful with it that you can never have anything happen, right? But the fact is there's times when we can we can play with it and see what it does and learn from it without consequence mm-hmm. if it's set up properly and it's during the right time of year. I mean, if you look at a burn window in February, it's very short. The days are short. The angle of incidence of the sun is like this. You know? <laughs> so we're talking like not a lot of time for things to do anything. Mm-hmm. And under extreme conditions with a lot of wind, when it's droughty and we haven't seen rain or snow, I get it. You know, there's times when, yes, things can still crank. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of times when we're missing all these windows that where people could be reducing fuels around their house, doing the uh, equivalent of what they do in the south and yard burning yep um you know and learning from the fire in their own backyard yeah yeah a question I always find myself wondering about is how to engage community members in fire 
like beyond like asking them to get their FFT1 or whatever, like how are you potentially working towards that either with ODF or just in general, um, like actually engaging more community members, just folks off the street who have an interest in fire in the practice of putting fire on the ground. That's the certified burn manager program. Cool. That's it right there in action. Cause the whole point of that program is to reduce barriers to prescribed fire by creating an avenue for people who want to do more burning to want to get that skill set. I mean, I see it as kind of a gateway in some regards to folks becoming more oriented towards their volunteer department mm-hmm. because they'll have more fire background um, mm-hmm. at that point. Um, it could go both ways, I guess. But yeah, but yeah I think that, um, you know, there's local efforts here um, in getting folks who are doing just like home assessments. I think that's a good gateway is people looking at defensible space around their houses and just starting to think about how things would burn if they yeah. had a fire near Get their the house. Turning. Yep. And I think you start talking about fuels and how things will burn and looking at what could burn around your house. And that's a, a really good way for people to start engaging. Um, and then to talk to their neighbors. Cause a lot of what we're seeing with in the South Hills, there's a lot of fuels reduction work that's being done and defensible space work that's happening. And I think a lot of that is, is neighbor to neighbor, like somebody gets their house done and then their neighbors are like, oh, who did that? And then they want to know who and, you mm-hmm. know, and it kind of spreads from there. So there's some of that is just the community level. Um, it's spreading the way of firewood, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of house to house. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. But, um, you know, I there's also um, some um, programs through OSU, the um, Citizen Wildfire Academy is something that they've done in town in southern Oregon. So I think that is actually a good program to really kind of get folks more involved. Um, and Super I don't know cool. if they're going to be replicating that anytime soon. I think with the pandemic that they stopped doing it for a little while. But Whoa, that sounds like a cool program. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, do you Could you give me kind of your upper-level view of the prescribed burn or the prescribed fire report that recently came out? Yeah, um, so, you know, I think it's very understandable in some regards that they would be um, more restrictive of prescribed burning as a result of what happened in New Mexico. But I think that the reality is the Forest Service needs to uh, double down on the resources that it needs to do prescribed burning. Um, I think it knows it needs to do more prescribed fire, and it's just going to need to staff up and invest in it to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the uh, treating prescribed fires more like wildfires, I can understand that. And if you're going to do that, you need to invest as such. Mm-hmm. And we invest in wildfires with a blank, blank check, you know. I mean, it might as well be. You don't get a budget on a wildfire. You right. get a budget on a prescribed fire. And sure do. to the point <laughs> that you can actually convert a prescribed fire into a wildfire only because of budget. If you run out of money, you can convert it to a wildfire for a service side only for that reason so um i think we need to open up the checkbook for prescribed fire if we're serious about it and if we're going to treat it like wildfire then open up the checkbook and order the resources and staff it up just like you would a wildfire Mm -hmm. and and ramp up that work i've always said we can take care of the prescribed fire fuels problem if we deregulate the air sheds and we double the amount of i mean we staff up to the equivalent of what we do for wildfires Mm -hmm. If you had the same amount of money going into prescribed fire as you do for wildfire, 
would we have these problems? Yeah. And I'm not talking about mechanical stuff. I'm talking about getting fire back on the land. Yeah. Um, now, I'm not unrealistic. I don't think we can prescribe burn our way out of this problem. So don't get me wrong. Yeah. It's got to be the whole toolbox. And the problem is that this toolbox, people grab their tools out and they're like, we need this tool. No, we need this tool. No, and let's use this tool. All the tools. <laughs> all the tools. And the problem is that prescribed fire is the, the tool we need to use the most. And it's the one that we constrain the most. Mm-hmm. And it's the one that gets used the least compared to all the other tools. When mm-hmm. it comes to mechanical treatments, mastication, thinning, logging, all of those treatments are way scaled up compared to the amount of prescribed fire going on the ground. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. So if you continue to constrain prescribed fire, you're not going to scale it up. Mm-hmm. If they want to constrain it, I get it. In fact, I totally understand why they're doing this. And I say, if you're going to do that, then you need to invest way more money into it mm-hmm. to make it happen. Otherwise, it's just going to drop off. Right. And we were talking about how we do need to have a, like some sympathy for the for the Forest Service because of the the staffing and the the amount of money that this is all going to require. Um, can yep. you talk a little bit about that uh, and kind of how we're we're almost set up to fail in terms of these big federal agencies yeah. and actually getting some of this stuff implemented? Well, look at the capacity of the Forest Service today compared to 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's incomparable. Look how many districts there were that don't even exist anymore that have been lumped together, whole forests that have been lumped together under leadership. Um, you can't expect the agency to face all of these problems with continued cuts to its staffing and its budget. Um, so that's really the heart of the problem, is that in order for the Forest Service to be able to do what it's being asked to do, it needs the capacity to do that. Mm-hmm. And it just simply doesn't have it. There's mm-hmm. not enough people. They don't have enough positions. And, yeah, so the so I've, the Forest Service, I mean, there's multiple things going on for them. They get the most focus of attention for responsibility for the fire problem partly because they took responsibility for the fire program problem a long time ago had became the leaders and the champions of fire suppression so they really owned fire and they still do so that's part of why they get that focus but then they get a lot of blame pinned on them as well and I truly believe that um, they're between a rock and a hard place I mean we've got landscapes that um, have been contentious and held up, kept from um, having what they need done to them or with them. Um, they don't have the staff they need to complete their mission. And, you know, when something like what happened in New Mexico happens, everybody's got an opinion and everyone's involved in it. Mm-hmm. And the amount of political pressure is immense. Um, and so I really think our expectations of the agency are pretty high compared to what we give them to work with. Mm-hmm. And I think if we're going to keep holding them to those high standards and then expect them not to produce a report like this that says we're going to be extra, extra, extra careful because we don't want to have this happen again. I don't blame them for doing that. But like I said, if you're going to do that, you need to find a way, a real pathway that says, here's how we're working with our Office of Personnel Management to increase our number of positions, to make them pay better, to get to make them full time and year-round, getting away from the seasonal firefighting thing and really making like living wage jobs for people that are going to sustain their families and keep them working so mm-hmm. they're not having to go, you know, work on a ski hill in the winter or something. I mean, that's fun, but and if that's what you want to do, that's cool, but if you want to raise a family and you can't do that because you know, you're running around fighting fire and trying to do that for a living, then 
Yeah. So, so I think that, um, you know, I, and I, I'm not saying it's easy for the agency to go make those changes, right? Because mm-hmm. ODF, we, we have similar challenges, right? Where we need to staff up, but there's hurdles in, mm-hmm. involved in that with, with personnel and stuff. So you can't just add a bunch of positions. you got to work with the union. There's a process. It's almost like easier to, you know, I don't know if it's actually easier to cut jobs, but, you know, that, that long-term um, decline in the number of people managing our public lands is really at the heart of this problem to me mm-hmm. more than anything else is that Agreed. while that has happened we've increased the demands on those people mm-hmm. absolutely so what do you expect them to do then to just be more careful and risk averse and offsetting that risk because we all know the real risk is in not treating fuels and not burning and not letting fires do their good work we know that's true but we've set ourselves up for this too mm-hmm. right and so it's we're in a bind you know we can't just let everything burn because we keep having problems with that and we also see our own prescribed buyers doing things we don't want them to do and causing adverse impacts mm-hmm. and we can say 99 point whatever percent of fires do what they want that doesn't mean that that 0.6 percent is okay if it takes out somebody's house or you know we can't or we have to be talking about it like that and saying, we have this margin of error and we're okay with it. But nobody's doing that yet. It's all reactive saying, but we're, but we're 99 point whatever, great. Right. That doesn't really right. speak to the problem because that 0.6 is a big problem. Okay. No kidding. That yeah. 0.6% is a big problem. It's the thing I work every time on a burn to avoid. It's what I'm extremely preoccupied with as a burn boss. It's not my frequency factor. I'm not worried about that. I've never lost a burn, ever. You know? Ever. That's impressive. And you know how many times I've burned? I don't even know how many units I've burned. Mm-hmm. I've came close twice. <laughs> twice. Came close. Caught it. Okay? Um, that caused me a lot of worry, you know? So we're worried about that. Mm-hmm. And we should be. Mm-hmm. And we should just say, we have a margin of error that's really small, and it's high consequence when it happens, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And be upfront about that. And let's have that conversation. Because what we're not, because we're talking about it like, oh, it's okay because we're mostly successful. But, you know, that's great. We are mostly successful. But let's talk about what, what happens when we're not. And totally. is that okay or not? Totally. Yeah, I'm just thinking of other things that we allow a certain margin of risk doing. Driving, mm-hmm. basically, yeah. is the first thing that comes to mind. Absolutely. <laughs> we There's certain risks that we just there's just a wag for it and we do it Uh and we don't really hone in on it Uh you mentioned deregulating airsheds earlier i'd love to hear more about that i don't know if i've heard about that before really well um you know smoke management is one of the constraints of prescribed fire Uh and so you know what i'm saying is that overall we would have to hold prescribed fire to the same standards as wildfire Uh which is regulated Uh yep i mean now when a wildfire event um causes the national ambient air quality standards to be off then they go in and change the data basically through an exceptional events um and there so there's processes for um basically saying that didn't really happen Mm -hmm. um i mean that's a, a crude way of saying it but the gist of it is that um, wildfire smoke, there's not really any way to regulate. So 
prescribed fire smoke gets heavily regulated and if we would we would basically have to say it's okay for prescribed fire smoke to be in our air and to not and to hold it to the same standard as as wildfire which we'll see mm-hmm. i mean we have the american lung association officially endorsing prescribed fire as a form of okay smoke oh really yeah no way. They've come a long way. So if we have the American Lung Association on board with prescribed fire smoke, I think we're making good progress there on that one. Um, it just really has to do with working through the regulatory framework in the different states. And each state is different in the terms of how they implement the Clean Air Act. Each state has a state implementation plan of the Clean Air Act, and then each state has a choice as to whether or not to have a smoke management plan as a part of that. And that smoke management plan is intended to manage smoke from various sources. You know, here in Oregon specifically, um, vegetation smoke. Um, from intended fire. Yeah. Um, but there's, yeah, I mean, yeah. So anyways, um, it we're basically regulating it so as to not contribute to existing problems or, you know, to make them worse. So mm-hmm. some areas are in what they call non-attainment, which means they are already not meeting the national ambient air quality standards. So if that, for whatever reason you go and add more smoke to that and then they're really not meeting them. So mm-hmm. those areas are really hard to work in because of, um, because of that. But anyways, are those areas like, like, is that like a topographic feature? It can be. Oak Ridge, for example, yeah. is, um, a city with lots of drainages leading down into that one spot mm-hmm. and it tends to form an inversion and lots of people burn wood for heat there. Yeah. So they have a lot of problems with air quality as a result. Um, yeah. So places that are already in non-attainment, um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's because of yeah other other air quality issues that are going on. Um, you don't really want it to be from prescribed fire, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and the Eugene Springfield area was for a long time, but we have a, a regional air protection agency here called Lane, Lane Air Protection or Lane Regional Air Protection Agency, and they regulate specifically just Lane County. But that's the only county in Oregon that has a regulatory entity. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it just having been in Reno and then driving through next to the Mosquito Fire a couple days ago, mm-hmm. I was like, man, like, if you could disperse this out over an entire winter, um, it would be like air, AQI of 50 every day. Yep. But instead, it's 600 right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was insane. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's these smoke-filled summers, um, you know, we say they could be avoided, and I tend to think <laughs> that's true. I mean, but that's because I think that we could have like either managed fires or prescribed fire. We just allowed more fire on the land. But I mean, I also think there's a certain amount of like summer smoke we're going to have. It's just totally a matter of balancing it out. And I think we're getting a lot of that summer smoke now as kind of a catch up. I feel like we're paying a little bit of a debt off. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah we were totally indebted to fire suppression yeah. slash fuel loading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you, are there any misconceptions that you come across somewhat regularly in your work? Um, I think that with, now it depends on who I'm talking about, who the misconception is from, you know, but like just the public. Um, I think that they don't quite understand that we essentially treat prescribed burns as sort of like the opposite of a wildfire, that we're generally walking them into the wind. And so we create a catcher's mitt. Mm-hmm. where we're starting from and we we work fire into the wind so that it, we're always sending it back into what's already burned and yeah. I think if people could sort of visually understand that and then also understand 
especially when viewed from a drone, how beautiful that can look to see like fire sort of being carried across the landscape and how it works with itself and draws it into itself. And seeing like that we're manipulating what it does with the fire we're actually putting down mm-hmm. and we're controlling it that way mm-hmm. um, would not only build comfort and but also interest from people in like what we're doing and appreciation for how much it takes to do it, but also how simple it is, you know, because we have a lot of equipment and people out there and they're very focused and doing all this work, but the principles you can do on a small scale with just one person, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not recommending people burn alone, but <laughs> I'm saying, that, right. you know, in theory, it's the same thing, you know, and um, sort of demystifying fire, you know, and especially prescribed fire. It's interesting to me. Um, and so I think just, um, yeah, getting people to understand that, that when we burn, we're, we're doing it safely in a way that sort of is walking it in the opposite direction of the way fire behaves on its own. Mm-hmm. It's like we're like painting our way out of a room. Yeah, that's cool. That's a cool. That's like a. That's a great visual. Um, I'm curious personally how what the prescribed burn manager position or uh, uh, training and everything looks like. Like, if I were to just come in, I'm an FFT one. If I were to just come in, like, what would that uh, what would that process look like for me? It would look like a really, like, scaled-down um, NWCG course, you know, walking through a burn plan, mm-hmm. sort of going through the elements, um, looking at some of the state laws and regulations, but just really nuts and bolts basics of this is what... It's sort of like if you were to take some of your basic firefighter training, right? So mm-hmm. some of it would be really basic for your, like, oh, my gosh, fire triangle, whoa. And you're like, did I come here for this? No, 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 it's okay. That just has to be covered because we're trying to get people who have no FFT1 experience right. up to speed, mm-hmm. right? To be able to start training in the field with an experienced person Cool. after having taken their exam and passed it. So there's steps here, you know? Uh-huh. And we're trying to find that balance. You know, Lenya uh, Quinn-Davidson wrote a really nice piece about the rigor versus, what was it? It was basically um, looking at, easy peasy programs that are not rigorous enough versus too rigorous. It was a fire adapted communities piece, but anyways, so the idea is that, you know, we don't want to make it so easy that anyone can do it, but we don't want to make it so tough that it's a, that there's barriers that are unnecessary. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of trying to find that balance, which is why I say that some of it, you would be like, Oh gosh, really? Fire (laughs) triangle. I remember that from my first day at fire school. And then, but by the end it would be like, Oh, and cool. I just learned about, um, you know, how to do this lighting pattern. So there'll be stuff about lighting patterns and, you know, holding techniques that are not going to be the same as like, it's not how to put a fire out. It's how to keep the fire where it is in the box, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Here's a little suppression tactic, but (laughs) mainly how do you sort of, it's actually, it's like you'll go to school planning as to go to, or you'll go to this class to plan as though there's a fire as opposed to going to the class to learn how to respond to one. That's really the gist of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, but again, it's meant to be accessible to all Oregonians, right? I mean, of 18 or older, I guess. But, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's supposed cool. to be accessible to anyone. So, um, so the key is really that element of making sure that, um, that folks... Um, get everything from the triangle to 
how to keep their burn in the box and get the kind of um, effects that they want from mm. their ignition patterns. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not going to go into the weeds of a fire effects class where we're getting really detailed about plant response, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. the basics of if you're burning grass and this is what you're trying to accomplish, okay, try this. But you may not want a ring fire around your ponderosa pine stand because that could involve crown fire and damaging the trees that you don't want. So, mm-hmm. you know, but that's like really basic level stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And kind of combine it into one package. That is so cool. I want to take a prescribed burn manager program now. Yeah. Um, there's, there's one wonder, in Washington. There's one in Washington. I was just going to say. The training is in November. No way. And they actually, um, I think they have room. I'm going. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. You want me to put you I in touch like with I feel like I got Kyla? an... With who? Kyle Lapham is putting it on. I was going to say, I feel like I got an email about this from the Washington Fire Adapted Network that I follow. Um, Oh my gosh, I would love to do that. I should do that. Yeah. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately is like, I'm doing all this like education and communication, but I'd love to do more implementation, like more on the ground stuff. Mm -hmm. And I live in Bellingham, Washington, which is not very fiery. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The vibe isn't like, isn't fiery like down here, you know? So I'm like, how can I, like, find a way to, yeah. like, do more burning in my community or in, like, that area or, like, on the San Juan Islands or... Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you should tie in with these folks. Oh, really? I'm serious, because Eco States Institute burns in Puget Sound. That's where they're based. I've heard... I am on their newsletter, too. Okay, so you need to get introduced to them, because yes. you can volunteer for them. I am going to do that right away, as soon okay. as we're done. Cool. And on that note, um, oh, yeah. I have no more questions. However, if you'd like to have anything, add anything... Um, that we haven't touched on or anything that you, anything pressing that you might have at the front of your mind? Oh, well, I would just say that, um, you know, I, I always get asked to do like some women in fire type thing. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was thinking today about how, and in preparation for this interview, I was like being somewhat ADHD and like fight and fire really prepared me well to be a working mom. Cause I'm balancing everything, you know? And <laughs> So actually, that I gives what, me hope. What I want to end on, yeah, there's hope for you yet. Um, is like all the stuff I've been talking about is really all what's prepared me to be a mom, and that's my most important job. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> so you it do sounds kind of like- cheesy, but it's like I'm like, yeah, all the work I've done and everything that I've accomplished at this point, and is is the most important aspects of it are actually how it's led me to be where I am as a mom and be a better mom to my kid. That is so incredible. I have yeah. goosebumps right now. I don't know if that's because it's colder because that was a really nice statement, but yeah. probably because that was a very nice statement. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is. And here's sweet. a little burner. And, um, oh. I just want to end on that. Okay. He's three years old. Uh-huh. And the other day as we were driving down 18th, this was back with actually not the other day, but it was like a few months ago and there was camas in the field and because he's been on prescribed burns enough now he goes mama i want to do a prescribed burn in the camas with mason and rodri and katie all of whom are here by the way because he's burned with them so my son already associates prescribed burns with socializing with friends and that's kind of my mission, actually, is that we all get to the point where prescribed fires are social events that we all come together to do for fun, for for community, yeah. to take care of our community and our land, mm-hmm. and that it's a celebratory, but also, like, you know, it's it's a sacred right, and, like, you know, it's a sacred action, and there it's a right and responsibility, but it's also something that really brings people together, and it's, like, fun, and so... yeah. 
I would just like to see that. And the way my kid views prescribed fire is the way I wish that we could all view it. All right, that is what we have for you today for Life of Fire podcast. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Amanda Rao for coming on the show and for being down to have a really long conversation out in the woods as the sun was setting back in September. Super cool to chat with her. I think she had a lot of great insights. Hopefully you did too. Uh, Nothing really else to say other than if you want to support the podcast, we'd love to get any reviews that you have. We'd love to hear any, uh, any input that you have. If you want to hear from a certain guest or if you want to hear about a certain topic, let us know. You can send us an email. Uh, lifewithfirepodcast at gmail.com or you can support us on Patreon if you're really interested in kind of helping us out, helping keep this thing going. Uh, That's just patreon.com slash lifewithfirepod and otherwise, all the usual stuff, you know, listening, sharing, talking about the podcast, maybe following us on Instagram, those things are all great and we super duper appreciate it. But that is all the schmoozing that we have for you today. So, Thank you for listening to the podcast and we will catch you on the next one.